0: Before we begin, let's, uh, let's bow our heads and ask God to be with us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath day, the day that you have created for man because you knew what was best for us. And we pray that we might be able to receive the blessings that you have prepared for us in this entire day. May your angels walk these aisles. May your spirit incline each heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, mental illness has a significant stigma. There's a lot of people that don't want to get help for their mental illness, even coming for a depression and anxiety recovery program in a residential setting because they know that somebody might see them there and label them with that stigma. It's getting less of a stigma today just because mental illness is so prevalent. For those who pride ourselves that we don't have mental illness, uh, last year just under half of individuals had either major depression or anxiety. So they're almost, mental illness is now becoming almost the majority of people. And it may come a point in time that if you're mentally healthy, you'll be in a significant minority. Uh, in this country. But uh, uh, right now, as far as the standard diagnosis, it's still a little bit less than 50 percent. But often what's not talked about in hardly any setting is a mental illness that 100 percent of humanity struggles with. And I will introduce this mental illness and also how to solve it after the introduction. Uh, by going back to a conference that I attended in 1991. I'm going to start dating myself. Uh, I was already through with uh, uh, residency. I was uh, through with my specialty training. I'd actually taught in a residency program, enjoyed teaching, and uh, then... uh, had set up my private practice. I would become director of the intensive care unit at the hospital that I was associated with because of my training. And I also was very interested in lifestyle and preventive medicine. The place I chose to practice at that time was the only place I could find that wanted me to do both, critical care medicine and lifestyle medicine. All the other places wanted me to do either one or the other. And uh, I, uh, I loved being able to save people from the clutches of death in a hospital setting as well. And then after they were saved from the clutches of death to teach them how they could never have to go into a hospital again, at least in the near future. Uh, and, uh, and when I saved them from the clutches of death, I noticed they always followed my advice after that because they had a lot of respect uh, uh, for uh, that. Uh, aspect in how um, they could have very well died but were were saved through um, through a, a really a combination of factors um, that came together. So in 1991 there was a first international conference on the elimination of coronary artery disease that was going on in Tucson Arizona. We had just had our first child in August of that year and the conference was in October but I told Erica, we have to take him on his first plane ride. We're going to Tucson. I want to be at this conference." Now I didn't make my mind up uh, just snap. Of course, I wanted to see who was presenting. And I saw professors from University of California, San Francisco. I saw a professor from Cornell. I saw professors from Cleveland Clinic. I saw a number of. Uh, also uh, Louisiana, uh, from all over the country and the world that were well-respected, well-researched physicians presenting on not just how to prevent coronary artery disease, but how to what? All right. I want to make sure you're listening. The title of the conference, there it is. The one in the front row. Where are you from? (laughs) <laughs> All right. Okay, he's from California, uh, over here on the East Coast. and uh, But he got it. Uh, it was not how to just prevent it. it, the title of the conference was the first international conference on the what? Elimination of coronary artery disease. And I thought when I, te- I was very excited to attend that conference. Good video cameras had just come out, and I had gotten one, and I was in the front row, and I was, filming these slides and and filming the professors and arming myself with all sorts of educational material to tell my patients when they got out of the hospital. And I was thinking, this information is so exciting. And it, it will eliminate coronary disease. The evidence is very clear. And the number one thing that I admit people to an intensive care unit for is coronary artery disease. I'm admitting them for congestive heart failure, complications of coronary artery disease. And what will my life be like in 25 years when heart disease is an oddity? When people haven't even heard of congestive heart failure, I was thinking I'm gonna have to teach my residents when I see a patient with CHF in 25 years. This is what I used to do on a regular basis. And it's very rare today because we've eliminated this disease through diet and lifestyle. Well, 25 years has passed. And what do you think the number one cause of death is still in the United States? It's not COVID. You might think last year, the number one cause of death was COVID. The number one cause of death, even last year was coronary artery disease. And by the way, sometimes, you know, the the, the media has a, the one thing consistent about the media is that they are going to major in minors and minor in majors. <laughs> And, majors. And last year, they majored in COVID because they thought with the right politics, we'd be able to prevent it. Or we'd be able to do all sorts of things that could help eliminate this disease and the lockdowns and all of these sorts of things. But they didn't talk about the more deaths occurring every day that we actually can eliminate. Nobody was talking about the thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people that die from coronary artery disease, which is actually more able to be eliminated than COVID deaths. Totally absent. And when heart disease occurs, And when congestive heart failure occurs, and a death occurs, it's not mentioned. It's like, oh well, another one. And this is common, but it can be eliminated. Is the reason why it isn't eliminated is because those professors were all wrong in 1991? No, we actually know they're more right today than ever before. The reason why it hasn't been eliminated and why the world has not changed that much is actually not due to lack of good scientific information. It's due to a mental illness that is prevalent in almost every person in the world. And what is that mental illness? Lack of self-control. When you know how to eliminate a disease, but you suffer from that disease, the problem is no longer heart disease. It's a disease of the mind. It's one of the reasons why Ellen White, far ahead of her time, said nine out of every ten diseases have their origin where? In the mind. Eighty percent of cancer's deaths can be prevented by putting into practice what we know now that can prevent cancer deaths. Why why are cancer deaths? By the way, the number one cause of death in this country when you're under the age of 85 is actually cancer. It's not heart disease. And cancer deaths are occurring largely due to lack of self-control. But it's not just that. What is the definition of self-control? It's the ability to keep ourselves from acting on our behavioral or emotional impulses. And... Dr. Baumeister, who is now, fortunately, the most quoted researcher in all of the world, he doesn't live too far away from us, he teaches at Stanford University, says this, self-control failure is central to nearly all the personal and social problems that currently plague citizens of the modern developed world. And he makes a very eloquent case that self-control failure is the number one problem in all the world. But you know, the president doesn't talk about it. The past president never talked about it. Congress never talks about it. The Senate never talks about it. Religious leaders come all the way from Rome and fill stadiums. They'll talk about problems, but they won't talk about the number one problem. It's the elephant in every room, (laughs) but it's totally ignored. You had to come to a place like Heartland Institute to hear about this problem. (laughs) (laughs) Lack of self-control is the number one cause of heart disease. Diabetes, is that going up or going down in our country? Yes, genetics loads the gun, but it's lifestyle that pulls the trigger. And we know how to prevent and eliminate this disease by self-control. Sexually transmitted diseases, is that going up or going down? It's going up, I remember, in the 90s. Some liberal academics that preached from their mountaintop university ivory towers that if we would allow pornography to become prevalent and condoms to be disseminated everywhere, we would eliminate sexually transmitted diseases and rape. They got their way, but what happened to both of those things? They did not go down. They went up. By the way, not one of those liberal academics has ever apologized to the public for what they pushed on the public. Stroke. Not always, but stroke can be prevented over 80% of the time by putting into practice what can prevent stroke. Alcoholism, by definition, that's lack of self-control. It's hurting you, but you keep going back to it. Murder is on the rise, largely due to lack of self-control. Rape is on the rise. Once you know the principles of mentally healthful living, which is what people learn with depression and anxiety when they come to Weimar, and their depression and anxiety will often be gone in 10 days. If not 10 days, in 17 or 24, eventually those principles do work and eliminate depression. If they experience it again, what is it gonna be due to? Lack of self-control. We talked about cancer. Unwanted pregnancy, by definition, lack of self-control. Adultery and divorce, so often due to lack of self-control of one or both partners. Underachievement in college. I now sit at continuing education courses for presidents of universities in California and Hawaii. And the number one reason why presidents of universities lose sleep is the underachievement of their students. And why are they underachieving? Lack of self-control. Financial failure, lack of self-control, relationship problems, often lack of self-control. Technology addiction. By the way, what percent of the public now has an addiction to technology? <laughs> According to the American Addiction Association, it's pushing 80%. 80%. And I can tell you it's, it's pretty dramatic in regards to what happens when someone's dependent on technology and it's taken away from them. We had a girl the other day I had to see in the emergency room who was severely injured trying to jump out of her car going down the highway. Why did she jump out of the car? Because her mother grabbed her phone and took it away while they were going down the freeway. And she couldn't tolerate life without it. We've had people, we actually do, hopefully it won't discourage any of you that are addicted, but at the, the first presentation we give in depression and anxiety recovery is about what technology does to the brain. We'll talk a little bit about that this afternoon when we talk about emotional intelligence. And We're going to be talking about five primary things that are very key for us to improve our emotional intelligence, but one of them is called digital minimalism. And we'll show you how we do that. Uh, but to first be digital minimal, if you're addicted, you first need to go through an e fast, an electronic fast. And a lot of these people, even older adults, we had a 75 year old individual who came. And often they know this is going to happen, and so they'll bring two smartphones. <laughs> be sure your sins will find you out. Because we can always see, uh, we, can, we can pinpoint it pretty quick. Because these are the people that are short of sleep. These are the people that are late to lectures. They're people we're always having to get. And then we hear audio coming from their room. And we hear this sort of thing. And they don't get the full benefit of the 10 days. They sabotage themselves. But so many times they say, I'd rather not eat for 10 days than you take my phone away for 10 days. It's an addiction. It's a powerful addiction. And lack of self-control is at the center of it. But it's not a new problem. It's a problem that the Bible spoke about. Paul spoke about his issues in this area. And he said this, I don't really understand myself. I wanna do what is right, but I what? I don't do it. Instead, what do I do? I do what I hate. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. There's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. And then he says one of the saddest texts in all of Scripture. Romans 7.24. Oh, what a miserable and wretched person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? That term wretched is mentioned in the most famous Christian hymn. What's the most famous Christian hymn? Amazing Grace. Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. That's talking about someone that doesn't have that self-control. But it's only mentioned one other place in Scripture. What other place is it mentioned? It's in the book of Revelation. And actually, our theology student read it to you. (laughs) What church was that written to? Just a few weeks ago. I came from Laodicea, the actual city in Turkey. Weimar Institute and their theology department put together a uh, seven-tour, seven-city tour of the seven churches in Revelation. We did them by order. It was a great tour, by the way. I learned a lot. Uh, If you can ever hear Dr. Uh, Dr. Z, uh, who knows seven languages, and uh, he has some great insights in Revelation. We're told if we understand the book of Revelation, what will happen? A deep revival will occur. And a deep revival did occur as a result of that study. By the way, you have to understand those seven churches well to understand even the seven seals and the seven trumpets. He makes a very eloquent case that the seals are those who follow the advice of each of the seven churches, and the trumpets are the warnings for those who heard the advice but will not follow it in regards to what's going to happen. And those trumpets go all the way through Revelation 16, and uh, with the seven last plagues that are actually poured out on those who do not follow the message of Laodicea. In Laodicea, I was pretty surprised, never been there before. This was the city of drama. They had two huge theaters, the largest theaters in the world. And they had actors come, and they had those theaters busy all of the time. And they also had the biggest sports stadium. They had the biggest huge team sporting events of the known world. Hollywood and sports sounds a lot like the United States of America on what is forefront in a lot of people's minds and what they do. And of course, these are the things you do when you're rich and you're increased with goods. You need to have something to occupy your mind because you have more money than you really know what to do with or, and so you spend it on things such as this and to entertain yourself. And so a lot of people think they're in pretty good shape, but these words are from Christ himself, that's why they're in red letters. And he says, you think you're rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are what? The first word is wretched, there's miserable, again a reference to Romans 7, 24, poor, blind, and what else do you not have? What is it that you don't have when you're naked? The robe of what? The robe of righteousness. So this has eternal consequences. This is what Christ is saying. If you stay in this condition, there are eternal consequences waiting you. And so this is why he gives this warning. By the way, this is a, a lot of the churches had commendations and recommendations. A couple of the churches only had commendations, no recommendations, but Laodicea was a church that had no commendations. They thought they were in pretty good shape. You know, you walk into the church that was Laodicea there, it was a beautiful church. <laughs> it was, they, they've uncovered it and preserved it. It was the, the, certainly the most spectacular church that we saw among those seven churches. And right there, someone nailed to the wall of the church as you go in the entire message to the Laodicean church by Christ himself as you're walking in there. And they recommended you read that before you go in. So we need to get to the secret to avoid this wretchedness because it will not only help us eternally, it'll help us now. Why do we know it's going to help us now? Well, because the secular psychologists have been studying it. And the secular psychologists tell us the solution to this is a word that they're resurrecting. What's the solution? Temperance. Temperance. Now, Weimar, of course, loves temperance because we have trademarked the health acronym called? New New Start. The N stands for? Nutrition. The E? Exercise. The W, water. The S, sunlight. The first T, temperance. temperance. And so I can't disagree with this being a ultimate, a, one of the ultimate solutions to comprehensive self-control. So let's define it. Temperance is moderation in the things that are healthy and abstinence in the things that are unhealthy. And strict temperance requires what type of self-control? Comprehensive self-control. Now, everybody, sometimes we'll have patients come to our program. And most all of them tell us that they have lack of self-control. But sometimes we'll get people that think they're being very honest and say, I have no self-control. I have no self-control whatsoever. And as I get to know them, I realize they actually do have selective self-control. I have yet to meet an individual that doesn't have selective self-control. Often these people are very particular about the soil that they're planting their marijuana plants in. (laughs) They water their marijuana plants on time. They harvest them at the right time. They put all of that mixture together at the right time. They have selective self control in that area of their life, but in every other area, they have no self control. And so, and sometimes there's even more powerful examples. This individual I have met before, but he hasn't come to our program, and he should have come before this happened. But he is the, since I live in California, I talk about the most famous governor in the state of California. Who is the most famous governor? It wasn't Ronald Reagan. <laughs> I wish it would be Ronald Reagan. <laughs> the present generation, as I go around the world, hasn't, have, they haven't heard of Ronald Reagan. <laughs> but the, the governor that just about everybody's heard of is who? Arnold. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, how did he become famous? Was it because he was governor? <laughs> no, he was famous long before he was governor. He became famous because of? Hollywood. Not because of Hollywood. He was famous before Hollywood. Why did Hollywood choose him? Bodybuilding. Mr. Universe. Does it require meticulous self-control to build up those muscles? Oh, yes. You have to be in the gym when you don't want to be in the gym. You've got to be doing things with your body that are painful that you don't want to do with your body. And you've got to keep doing it and you've got to do it on time, and you have to have the right nutrition, and you have to be particular about what you're putting into your body. And there's a lot of selective self-control that comes into bodybuilding. But in an area of his life where it was more important for him to have self-control, when his maid was cleaning his house, he lacked it. And he lost the love of his life Due to not having what type of self-control? Comprehensive self-control. And he didn't want to lose his wife. He begged her, please, please, I love you. Don't leave me. And she says, this was going on for a while. And we didn't know about it until he turns 18. And then he comes wanting money. You have betrayed me, I can't trust you. And he lost the love of his life due to not having comprehensive self-control. The secular psychologists, this is from Dr. Peterson, University of Michigan, Dr. Seligman, University of Pennsylvania, In our endeavor to measure this class of strengths of temperance. We have found that among people in the mainstream developed world, strengths of temperance are infrequently endorsed and seldom praised. Regardless, the strengths of temperance are very important and they have a rich array of positive consequences for the what? The psychological good life. I don't know of anyone who doesn't want to live the good life. Many people come to our program because they think it will be impossible for them to ever live the good life. They've been seeking for it, but they're not experiencing it. But the avenue to experience it, according to the secular psychologists, is to have comprehensive self-control. And why do they know about that? Once again, they've been studying it. So there's a self-control test that's administered. I'm just going to give you a few questions from this self-control test. You can look it up online, it's a very extensive test. And they have tested many people in many different settings and then they followed them over time. But this is part of the questions. Getting up in the morning is hard for me. If you say yes to that, and you can rate it from one through five, but it's a strong yes. Getting up in the morning is hard for me. Would that be considered low self-control, or high self-control? That'd be considered low self-control. Okay, I want you to think about each one of these questions and tell me if it's low versus high. I blurt out whatever is on my mind. Are you guys with me? Let's let's say it in unison, is it low or high? Low, all right, let's try it again. I spend too much money. Low self-control, I keep everything neat. High self-control. I get carried away by my feelings. Low self-control. By the way, when people come through our program, they begin to recognize that. That's called emotional reasoning, when you're carried away by your feelings. I do many things on the spur of the moment. Low. I don't keep secrets very well. Low. I often interrupt people. Low. I'm always on time. High. I'm not easily discouraged. High. I eat healthy foods. High. Pleasure and fun sometimes keep me from getting work done. Low. Low. I have trouble concentrating. Low. Low. Sometimes I can't stop myself from doing something even if I know it's wrong. Low. I'm able to work effectively towards long-term goals. High. So after you take this test and answer a lot more questions than this, Then they will follow these people prospectively over time and they will see some very dramatic differences emerge. People with high self-control have better personality adjustment, higher self-worth, they're better at controlling their anger, they have fewer symptoms of somatization, obsessive compulsive patterns, depression, anxiety, hostile anger, phobic anxiety, paranoid ideation, and even psychotic tendencies. Now some people get confused, they think, well, wait a minute, an OCD person, aren't they exhibiting a lot of self-control over the things they're obsessed about? They might be, but they're actually neglecting something of greater importance as a result. <laughs> so they're minoring, they're, they're minoring in the majors and majoring in the minors, and uh, that's part of low self-control. People with high self-control are more conscientious, they're more emotionally stable, They make better relationship partners. They get along better with other people, and they're actually more accommodating of others, not less accommodating, like you might think. They report more satisfying relationships, and they have better adjustment in their relationships. They have better family cohesiveness. They have less interpersonal conflict, better perspective, and they actually empathize far better with other people. They don't wallow in their own personal reactions to other people's problems. They have more secure interpersonal attachments. They manage money well, they spend less, and they save more. And that's just partially. I could go through the many significant advantages. In fact, it's so important since we're talking to students, I would recommend, before you start a serious relationship, to have your perspective partner take a self-control test. (laughs) As long as you're willing to take the test, too. (laughs) And if you both score high on that, that's one of the best indicators that this is going to be a long-term, satisfying relationship, and you're going to experience more of the good life as a result of being associated. By the way, I was just uh, talking with our theology student. This past week, our SA president asked his sister to date him exclusively. But I didn't ask if either one of them took the self-control test. I, I may not have actually said that to Weimar, so, uh, or maybe not to them. So you can uh, find out Mr. Graybill and have them do that before they get too far in their relationship. <laughs> All right, so uh, back to the secular psychologists. In the course of daily life, in spite of their best efforts at self-control, People inevitably do what? Sin Sin and transgress, at least on what? Rare Rare occasion. It's kind of interesting. These are secular psychologists using these terms. (laughs) And they're using sin and transgress, at least on rare occasion. Even those with high self-control, they're saying do this. And can we generally agree with that statement? I think we can generally agree with this statement. Now notice what happens, though people with high self-control score relatively low in shame and high in what? Shame-free guilt. So they still feel guilty, but the shame part is not part of it. So what will then happen? Individuals with high self-control are inclined to take what? Responsibility for their transgressions rather than externalizing the blame or minimizing the importance of the transgression. They go on to say this, in short, having done wrong, high self-control people are inclined to focus on the effects of their behavior, and in so doing are inclined to do what? Make amends. In contrast, low self-control individuals are more apt to experience painful feelings of shame and emotion that often provokes the two Ds. What are the two Ds? Defensiveness and denial where the ones with high self-control, when they mess up, will go into the two R's. What are those? Repair and redemption. And so this tells us that if you have high self-control and you mess up, over time, you're going to become a better person. And you are going to continue to improve throughout life. What do we call that process? That's called sanctification where if you're a low self-control individual, you'll be shamed by what you're doing, but you're either going to blame other people, or you're going to say, it's no big deal. Why is someone pointing this out? It's no big deal. Everybody does it. This is not a bad thing. And so why am I being looked at in this way? My father summed it up this way. He says there's two types of people. He didn't know about all these terms. He wasn't into psychology. He was an engineer. But he said, You'll notice there's two types of people, Neil those with one year's experience 20 times over, and those with 20 years of experience. (laughs) So, what are the drawbacks of self control? The psychologists have looked at that too. By the way, can you get too much exercise? Oh, yes. Yes. Can you drink too much water? Oh, yes. Yes. And so, you would think on these other remedies, you might have. Maybe there's a problem if you have too much self-control. But they can't find any undesirable consequences of high self-control. Tangney tested for curvilinearity to see if excessive self-control, or what might be considered over-control, might produce negative consequences, but no negative patterns were found. Although in our society there may exist a stereotype of an overcontrolled person, one who's overly restrained, cautious, uptight, and not spontaneous, we see no evidence that self-control is to be blamed. In other words, if you have those things, it's not due to too much self-control. It's due to other issues that you've got. And so this is one of the remedies that you can't get enough of. In other words, the more, the better. Now... They've also gone into how we can build this up. Most acts of self-control involve overcoming some incipient response to the immediate situation in order to pursue some greater long-term benefit. Hence the ability to transcend the immediate situation is crucial, they state. People who live only in the present moment are unlikely to exhibit good self-control, whereas future-mindedness will facilitate self-regulation. There's a word that's used repeatedly in scripture, that means future-mindedness in a positive sense. What is that term? Hope. And so the more hope we have, is what they're saying, the more that can facilitate self-regulation or self-control. And of course, in order to have hope, this is the part of the frontal lobe of the brain. This is why we're doing things to build the frontal lobe, such as music and other modalities. But of all people that should have the most self-control should be those that believe in the what type of hope? The blessed hope. What is the blessed hope? The Bible explains that as the belief in the second coming of Jesus, which is what the term Adventist means. And so of all people, we should have an advantage if we really are believing uh, what were taught in regards to self-regulation. Proverbs says, he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. If you're slow to anger, what do you have? Self-control. And he that ruleth his spirit, then he that taketh a city. If you're ruling your spirit, you have that self-control. Commentary on this by the little book My Life Today says this, he has conquered self, speaking of that person in Proverbs, the strongest foe man has to meet. The highest evidence of nobility in a Christian is what? Self-control. He who can stand unmoved amid a what? Not just some abuse, but a what? A storm of abuse is one of God's heroes. He who has learned to rule his spirit will rise above the slights, the rebuffs, the annoyances to which we are daily exposed. And these will cease to cast a what? Gloom over his spirit. So the nuisances of life get other people down. But for those who have this comprehensive self-control, they'll go through that. And it doesn't really irritate them or get them down. Then this profound phrase. The man or woman who preserves the balance of the mind when tempted to what? Indulge Indulge passion stands higher in the sight of God and heavenly angels than the most renowned general that ever led an army to battle and to victory. This is something that a lot of Christians don't understand because I know a lot of Christians who have prayed the prayer that God would perform psychic surgery on them so that they'll never sin again. And then they think if they're sinning again, that it's God's problem. I ask God to take care of this. Why does God not answer a prayer like that? It does have to do with, the, with, with God's character. God is what? God is love, and love is a voluntary act. If he is love and he wants us to love, he wants us to have freedom. Not just freedom to pray that prayer, but freedom throughout our entire life. And so he's always going to give us the freedom to choose the ways that aren't best. Because he wants us to utilize that freedom to experience the deep love that he has for us. But... He can, notice this, the man or woman who preserves the what? The balance of the mind. What we need to pray for is for our mind to be balanced. And so we can utilize the front part of our brain, which is where the willpower is at, and we can use the proper analysis to continue to choose the right path every time. And notice... What she says, that when you're tempted to indulge passion and you preserve the balance of the mind, that's when you'll stand higher in the sight of God and heavenly angels and the most renowned general that ever led an army to battle and to victory. So assistance and self-control. I can go through some things here that the secular scientists have shown us. Bright lines help. This is actually Baumeister's work from Stanford. Uh, Worthy goals help. Enhancing the frontal lobe. uh, By the way, what is a bright line? Bright line is where you draw a line and you say zero abstinence, no exceptions anytime. And he also did a nice study at Stanford showing that if you believe the law is sacred, a commandment from God, it becomes an especially bright line. This is why in our program, although we have many agnostics and atheists come to our program, we actually teach them before the end because the principles behind the Ten Commandments help with the ten cognitive distortions, the irrational thoughts. And so we teach them those principles. And of course, those are bright lines. Baumeister has actually researched that out. It will actually help us with self-control in the future. And by the way, you might think it's controversial. It actually isn't. I don't know if you realize, but over 80% of Americans, even the vast majority of agnostics and atheists believe that the Seventh Commandment should be kept. (laughs) Now, you know, if you listen to the news media, you'd think only a stark minority believe it should be kept. No, that that research was done just two years ago. And uh, a vast majority believe a lot of those commandments should be kept. There's only one that they don't believe should be kept. Only 22% of Americans say this commandment should be kept. Which one is the one that, that the majority have an issue with? (laughs) The one that God said to remember (laughs) its the one they have the issue with. Uh, But um, developing worthy goals is also important in self-control. And, of course, we have people come to our program that say they have no goals, which is actually not natural. Everyone, it's naturally a part of humanity, have goals. So my next question is, what did your goals used to be before you didn't think you could obtain them? and then they'll start talking (laughs) about what their goals used to be, but they've given up on goals because they don't think they can achieve anything because of their lack of self-control. Enhancing the the frontal lobe also helps. Slowing down a limbic system and overdrive um, helps by changing some of our entertainment aspects, um, entertainment, um, TV, music, those sorts of things. All of those are helpful. But now I'm going to tell you how to develop the fail-safe solution to comprehensive self-control. And once again, it comes from this book, this commentary on Romans. But before we go into that book, I also want to tell you how I've also presented it a long time ago before I ever came to Weimar in regards to those who were dying due to lack of self-control. In the hospital, I would, always, I would often come across those with hepatic encephalopathy. The nurses did not like my orders. Put down an NG tube, give them lactulose to get rid of the toxins if their liver is built up. And they often have to fight the patient because the patient is out of their gourd to get this done. And they'll say, why are you having me do this? This person is just going to leave the hospital after we get them better and go out and drink again. And they'll say some of the most despicable things about them because they think that this person just willingly is going out there and doing themselves in. It's not really willingly, they don't wanna die and when they come to they're actually wanting to get over their habit. And whether it's him or whether it's you, this parable that Christ told is for all of us. In Matthew 13, he said the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking what? Goodly pearls. And of course, merchant men are not the only ones seeking goodly pearls. And of course, the pearl that everyone is seeking for, I just mentioned, it's the good life. So essentially, this merchant man was seeking the good life. The parable goes on. Who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold how much? All that he had and bought it. I'm sure the individuals around him were thinking that he had lost it. You're selling your car. You're selling your land. You're selling your house. You're selling all that you have. What is going on? And even Christians has become confused about this parable. In the book Christ Object Lessons, where she explains this more deeply, she says in the parable, the pearl is not represented as a a what? It's not a gift. The merchantman bought it at the price of all that he had. Many question the meaning of this, since Christ is represented in the scriptures as a what? Gift. Gift. He is a gift, but only to those who give themselves soul, body, and spirit to him without what? Without reserve. She goes on. We are to give ourselves to Christ to live a life of willing obedience to the commandments that we agree with to the requirements that we want to do let's read it again we are to give ourselves to Christ to live a life of willing obedience to what all his requirements all that we are all the talents and capabilities we possess are the lords to be consecrated to what his service When we thus give ourselves wholly to him, Christ, with how many of the treasures of heaven? All the treasures of heaven gives himself to us. We obtain the pearl of great price. Everyone in this world is seeking for the good life. But in this short parable, Christ tells us how we can all get there. the key to self-control is actually self-sacrifice. And it's actually self-sacrificing love. Notice this statement again from my life today, God's abounding love and presence in the heart will give the what? Power of self-control and will mold and fashion the mind and character. So the secular psychologists call it self-control but it's actually not self control it's a comes from a power from outside of us and god's love that self sacrificing love is not something we can muster up ourselves because naturally we are self centered people we have fallen human natures and that's why we need to put our selfish interests on the altar of sacrifice laid. And then God is willing to fill us with his abounding love and presence in the heart. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have what, one to another? If we would be true lights in the world, we must manifest the loving, compassionate spirit of Christ. To love as Christ loved means that we must what? What? Practice self-control. It means that we must show what? Unselfishness once in a while. At all times and in all places. So true transformative healing is actually dependent upon obtaining the pearl. Back to Christ's object lessons. She says the treasury of the jewels of truth is open to what? It's open to all, and love can change you, and it can change the world. Not erotic love, romantic love, or even brotherly love, as good as those are in their time and place, it's a love that human nature totally lacks, and that's why it has to come from outside of us. Love and kindness, I would encourage you to get it from God today, spread it around, Kind words, pleasant looks, little attentions, small acts of love. Let it flow to others, and it will increase the blessings and happiness of life. In that book, My Life Today, she goes on, Genuine love is a precious attribute of where? Heavenly origin. Once again, we can't manufacture it ourselves, which increases in fragrance in proportion as it is what? dispensed to others. So it's not something we keep to ourselves. If we have God's love, we're going to be continually dispensing it to others. And as we dispense it to others, what do we get more of? So not only can you and I get this today, we can get more of it tomorrow. And it's by continuing to dispense God's love to others. I'll close with two examples in self-control that met. They were contrasts. And the first one that's mentioned is who? Paul. Paul. Paul didn't have self-control in Romans 7, but he found the secret at the end of Romans 7, the last verse and all of Romans 8. That's essentially what we went into today, those principles. And now he's standing before Nero. How striking the contrast. The countenance of the monarch bearing the shameful record of the passions that rage within. That's Nero. The countenance of the prisoner telling the story of a heart at peace with God and man. That was Paul. The results of opposite systems of education stood that day contrasted. We're in an educational institution. Most of the educational institutions of this country and the world will tell you you need to watch out for number one. And who is number one? It's yourself. But true education teaches a, uh, the, the, the false education tra- teaches a life of unbounded what? Self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. And true education teaches you a life of what? Entire, Entire self-sacrifice. self-sacrifice. Here were the representatives of two theories of life. All-absorbing selfishness, which counts nothing too valuable to be sacrificed for momentary gratification. And self-denying endurance, ready to give up even What? Life itself, if need be, for what? The good of others. And then we're told if the soul is to be purified and ennobled and made fit for the heavenly courts, there are two lessons to be learned. These are the two major lessons that everyone will learn that lives eternally. What are they? Self-sacrifice and self-control. So for physical, mental and emotional and spiritual health to be comprehensive and lifelong, it demands the gospel to be complete. I was very excited about what I was learning in 1991. And I thought the world would change dramatically in 25 years. But what was lacking at that conference is there wasn't one gospel presentation. There wasn't one presentation on how to have comprehensive self-control. The world knows that they can do better in regards to what they're putting into their body and what they're doing with their body, but they don't know the secret. And that's why it's the sanitarium work, the medical missionary work that will really change the world. Because that will come with the ultimate solution to comprehensive self-control. So as I mentioned, many criticize what they think is the lowest part of human nature when they don't exercise self-control, even when it would obviously help them. But I saw these individuals as far differently because sometimes I would spend just 15 minutes with them going over the parable and how self-control comes from outside of them and are they willing to put their all on the altar of sacrifice? And with that 15-minute gospel presentation, Many of my patients left the hospital never to drink again. Amen. Wow. And I know one in particular that I told to, to that just before I took the call to Weimar in 2008, who was thought to be on death's door, is still alive. He also got on a plant-based vegetarian diet that will also help the liver. And he exercised self-control in a lot of areas and he's still active and doing well today. But he wouldn't have without the gospel, because prior to that, he was just coming in and out of the hospital and deteriorating his liver even further. The strongest bulwark of vice in our world is not the iniquitous life of the abandoned sinner or the degraded outcast. It is the life which otherwise appears virtuous, honorable, and noble, but in which one sin is fostered, one vice indulged. These people are actually in more peril because they have access to them the secret for comprehensive self-control. But they're thinking, I just need this one vice, I'm getting by pretty well, and this isn't going to really hurt me. But so often it ultimately does, and their encouragement to do so destroys others as well. Paul boiled down his solution to comprehensive self-control to three words. What were his three words? I die daily. This is a, a decision today and then every day to put your carnal nature aside and allow God's love to fill your life. And he will indeed give you the good life here, not just eternally. We cannot earn salvation, this comes from the same chapter on the Pearl of Great Price. We cannot earn salvation, but we are to seek for it with as much interest and perseverance as though we would abandon what? Everything in the world for it. So today you know how to start the road that gets to the good life. Don't pursue any more substitutes that, to the good life that doesn't get you there. I would encourage each one of you to choose comprehensive self-control. Even the secular psychologists tell us there's no downside and the doors are going to be open for a very beautiful life. But in order to have that comprehensive self-control, we need to first make that tough decision to put our all on the altar of sacrifice. Give yourself completely to God. Open your heart to his love. The last words Paul stated as he was on his way just a few days before he got executed by Nero. He said this. God gave us a spirit not of what? Fear. This is why the first message by Chris Holland. That was a great message. I would encourage those of you that weren't here to hear that message because I didn't know he was going to speak on that, but that goes hand in hand. His was... uh, His was the first punch. Uh, And it's very important. God gave us a spirit not of what? Not of fear, but of what? Power Power and love. This is speaking of God's love, that we can have the agape, self-sacrificing love. And what will be the result? Self-control. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, I know that there are many in this audience that have been struggling with self-control issues. It's part of humanity. It's part of our fallen human nature. It was part of what Paul struggled with in the greats of the world. But perhaps they have learned today the great great importance to comprehensive self-control. And even more importantly, the solution on how to get there. And so while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, for those who want to tell God, today I am choosing self-control, and I know what that means, I will put my all on the altar of sacrifice, and obtain that pearl of great price. If you are making that decision today, just notify God by raising your hand to God. Lord, I thank you for these decisions that are made. May each of us realize that when, if self-control becomes a problem with us again, it's due to selfishness in the heart, and we haven't put our all on the altar. Lord, I pray that you would fill each individual that has made this decision with your spirit, that you would grant them that balanced mind that when tempted to indulge passion, they will stand higher in your sight than the most renowned general that ever led an army to battle into victory. We thank you for your willingness to give us this pearl and I want to thank you for also putting your all on the altar of sacrifice for us. You recognized in us that if we would trust in you, we were goodly pearls. And you recognize how amazing humanity can be if we just submit to your will and way. We thank you that you put your all on the altar of sacrifice. And we thank you for what you're going to do in each life that has now chosen the path to the psychological good life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www. Dot audioverse.org.